Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. So I'll give you a moment to get there in your Bible or on your phone. Um, the title of today's message is called Step Out of the Armor. Step Out of the Armor. And this morning we're going to be really examining and focusing in on the life and the story of David, especially in this moment of David versus Goliath, maybe one of the most recognized, well-known, biblical, historical accounts in uh, the entire Bible. And, and I know that you know this, but just in case, and just to add a little bit of context, because we're not going to have a chance, time really, to read the entire passage of Scripture today, the whole entire uh, text of the story of David and Goliath, I want to just kind of catch everybody up to speed for where we're going to be jumping into this text. So essentially, where we find the scene opening is we find this battle line being drawn between these two armies. You've got the Israelites, God's chosen army, God's chosen people, and they've lined up against the Philistines, or the Philistines, however you want to say it, and they are about to engage in battle here in the Valley of Elah. And in the Valley of Elah, there is this valley in the middle. One army is on one hill, the other army is on the other hill, and the Philistines have this battle plan ready. And it's not to send everybody into the battle, it's to send their best soldier out into the middle of the battle lines and they call him a champion. That's what the Bible refers to him as. He was their champion. They sent their champion out into the middle of the battle line, and he challenged, he dared, he provoked the army of God, the Israelite army, to send one person to come challenge him in one-on-one -on -one combat. And the winner of that battle would win the entire battle, and that entire opposite army would then be subject to that winner. And it's intimidating because if you know anything about Goliath, from all of the accounts that we could read and from historians and theologians, we understand that Goliath was over nine feet tall. And it wasn't like a slender nine feet. I mean, it was a big nine feet. He was huge. He was a literal giant. He was aged. We know that he had some seasoning in his career, and so we know that he had won a lot of battles up until that point. Obviously, he hadn't lost one yet because he was still there that day. And so he goes out into the middle of this valley, and he just starts screaming at the armies of Israel, saying, I dare you to send me your best. Bring me your best. And the reaction of the Israelites is to be terrified. Literally, that's what the Bible says. The Israelite army, along with King Saul, their leader, was terrified and dismayed. And then all of a sudden, 40 days this is going on, every single day, Goliath walks into this valley, he screams the same thing, challenges them, calls them out, no response, and then finally, one day, David, this young shepherd, shows up to run an errand for his family to bring his brothers, who are on the battle lines, some food, and to get a report and then come back to his dad. He sees what's happening. David shows up and he is not terrified. David is not dismayed. David is angry. David is indignant on what is happening because he realizes that this man is now decrying his God's army. And he just stands up and he says, no more. I'm not going to take this. Let me get in there. And so he goes to the king and he says, let me fight this battle. Let me fight this giant. And the king pushes back a little bit, but David kind of gives a verbal resume of all the times that God's come through for him in his past while he was watching the sheep and how he's had to defend his flock and how he's taken down bears and lions. And finally, he convinces King Saul 
to give him the green light. And so David is going to go in there. David is going to do battle. David is going to do something that no other man in that army was willing to do. And that's where we pick up this story, is this interaction with David and with Saul in verse 38 of 1 Samuel 17. It says, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic, which is essentially an undergarment under the armor. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I, I'm sorry, I I skipped down to verse 45. I just kept reading. I didn't even let you know what was going on. 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. God, we are so grateful that it is living and it is active and it is powerful, God. And I pray that it would illuminate the truth of your love for us into our hearts today. God, I pray that your word would encourage us, and I pray that your word would challenge us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What I'm about to tell you might not seem true after uh, what the, the ceremony that you just saw take place, but I'm not much of a crier. I know it's hypocritical now. I did not expect to cry when all this was happening, and I was writing this, but I'm just not. Honestly, it's not really a range of emotion that I tap into that much, and honestly, it's not me up here like trying to act big and bad, because this is really me kind of being vulnerable. Uh, This is me just telling you how it is. It's just honest. I just don't really tap into that very often. I just, I'm not a crier. I don't cry about a lot of things. I'm sure you can psychoanalyze me if you want to, and then you can keep it to yourself, because I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I just don't cry a lot. I just don't. And it has created some interesting moments in our home, especially in my marriage, because my wife is exactly the opposite of that. My wife has labeled herself the town crier. My wife has cried probably 20 times today, just about random things. I'm sure in worship she cried. She comes prepared to cry all the time. She's usually got some makeup to touch things up. She's usually got a tissue around. I mean, like, she comes showing up knowing I'm probably going to cry at something today. Like, that's how she lives her life. And, and it doesn't really, like, sometimes it's meaningful, substantial things. Sometimes it's a commercial on TV. And I'll look over, and she'll just be bawling. And I'm like, what is happening right now, you know? Because I don't care how passionately Sarah McLaughlin sings in the arms of an angel to try to get me to adopt a dog. Like, no tears are coming from me at all. 
And it creates these moments of tension where I'm sitting on one side of the couch and she's sitting on the other and she's crying and she looks over at me and there's nothing and she looks at me and she says this all the time. She goes, you're heartless. You're heartless. I'm like, all right, fine, whatever, you know, whatever. But I just don't cry. There are a couple things, there are a few things in life that can kind of motivate me to cry. Uh, You know, obviously moments where... (laughs) An entire room stands up and cheers for you. It's a pretty big deal. So I was crying. My daughter uh, is taking video of me and this, that. It will do it every time. Um, when, uh, when, I'm, when I get lost in moments of worship and God's presence is just heavy, there are these moments where I'll cry. Um, the birth of my children, that happened. Uh, specifically with our firstborn with our daughter, for some reason, it was, I mean, like, I was not expecting it at all. Like, I, I was expecting the child. I was not expecting to cry. Like, <laughs> Just, I mean, lost it. I lost it. Just buckets of tears, just sobbing. And just had, I couldn't even tell you why. It was just this, this moment. And Deanna, my wife, loves to think about that. And she loves to talk about that because she loves it when I cry because it happens so infrequently. And so she's like, you remember? You remember how much you cry? You're just sobbing. You're just sobbing. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> and there are other times that I cry. And, and, and one of those times is, is with certain movies, one specific movie in particular. And it's probably not a movie like you think. It's like not a movie that's going to try to make me cry. Like I don't cry at movies that try to get me to cry. I see that as a challenge. I'm like, yeah, come on, try to make me cry. I will just dig in even further and get more cynical at you, movie, you know? And so it's not that. There's a movie that was released back probably in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, and I watched it as a kid, and I've watched it dozens and dozens of times, and every time it gets me. And this movie is a movie by the title Rudy. Maybe some of you have seen Rudy. Rudy is an amazing movie, one of the top sports movies of all time, in my opinion. But Rudy, if you don't know anything about it, it's this this football movie where Samwise Ganji comes from the Shire as a hobbit to try to destroy the ring at Notre Dame. No, that's same guy, different movies, sorry. I got it right this time, man. But this guy, undersized, not athletic enough to really make it to a Division I college program, but in high school, his, his only dream was to play at Notre Dame. Why Notre Dame? I'll never know. But he wants to play at Notre Dame. And so he has this dream, and he sets his goals, and he sets his sights on this dream, and he just works and works and works and works. And the whole movie is just this series of setbacks for him, of people telling him he's not enough, he's not good enough, he's not strong enough, he's not big enough, or whatever. And so he just continues to go because he has this huge heart, this passion to be a Notre Dame football player. And finally, if you fast forward to the end of the movie, you'll realize that in the last scene, there is this emotional moment where he finally has made it onto the squad at Notre Dame. He was on the practice squad for years. He gets bumped up his last game of his college career to actually wear a jersey and to stand on the sidelines, and he thought that it was going to end there, but his teammates had a whole different thing in mind. At the end of the game, with minutes ticking down and only seconds left on the clock, his teammates start this cheer, because his coach wasn't going to put him in, and they start this chant, and they start chanting his name, Rudy, Rudy. Rudy, Rudy, and it starts to grow, and it starts to build, and the players all on the sideline are all saying it in unison, and then people in the crowd are starting to hear, and so it starts, and it kind of builds its way all around the stadium full of tens of thousands of screaming fans at the end of this game are all saying his name in unison, Rudy, Rudy, and so 
the, the coach has no choice. He knows that to, to make it out of there alive, he's going to have to put Rudy in. And so he puts Rudy in the game for a few plays, and he's just happy to be on the field, and he ends up making a play. He, makes, he gets a tackle, and the crowd goes nuts, and the other players carry him off of the, sta- or off of the field rather on their shoulders with the crowd cheering in the background. And I am losing it when this happens. Like, I am crying hard when this happens. In my living room by myself, I'm like, Rudy, Rudy. Like, I am all in on this thing. It gets me every time. Every time. And I think the reason why is because I am a sucker for a good underdog story. Man, I love a good story of somebody that defies all of the odds. Somebody that's not supposed to do something or achieve something, but they put their mind to it and they're able to overcome great obstacles in order to have this success or a dream realized. Whether it's a movie, whether it's in literature, or, or if somebody's just telling me a story about underdogs, I am here for it. And there may be no greater underdog story in the history of humanity than the story of the shepherd boy David versus the Goliath of giant. You see, we can gain so much insight from this story on so many different levels. There are so many parallels that we can draw from the story of David and Goliath to our lives in Christ, that through the power of God, we can be victorious no matter what obstacle we face. And as we look at the story of David and Goliath this morning, I want us all to understand and realize and recognize that this was all a part of the plan that God had for David. You see, up until this point, David had already been anointed to be the next king of Israel. He was already chosen by God to be the next king in line. However, there was a king currently occupying that throne. And so David was kind of in this holding pattern in life. And so he was brought by God to this moment, to this place, to face this giant, because on the other side of this giant is the the call of God, this anointing to be the king. On the other side of this moment is David's destiny. You see, Goliath was kind of a big deal in between David and his destiny. Goliath was a literal giant between David and his destiny, this call that was specifically placed on him by God. And I love the series that we just came out of a couple of weeks ago. It's My Destiny. It was my favorite series that we did here at DCC for all of the 13 plus years that I've been here. I loved it. I loved that that we came together as a church and we started to discover that we all have individual destinies. That nobody in this room was was just kind of accidentally happened and that that God was like, oh man, he's here or she's here. I got to figure out something to do with their life now. No, no, no. We were all born with our destiny in mind, with destiny planted inside of who we are and our lives is kind of this pursuit of realizing that destiny and submitting ourselves to the God who's going to draw that destiny out of us. And so we all have a destiny. We have a destiny individually that we all have to walk out ourselves. We have a destiny corporately as Jesus followers, that that Jesus looked at us through the disciples and said, go into all the nations and make disciples. That is our mandate. That That is the design. That is the call for all of us together. But we all have individual stories to tell as well. We all have an individual calling on our lives to do great things for God, to walk in the destiny that he has called us into. But just like David, there are moments in life when giants pop up, and they get in the way of the destiny that God has provided for us. So I love the way that Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, when he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody say victory. Paul tells us that we have victory, not in ourselves, not in what we can accomplish, not in how good or how bad we are. We don't, not, we, nothing we do determines the victory. The victory is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that, that we have victory over sin because Jesus has victory over sin. That means that we have victory over death because that tomb that we celebrated empty last week, guess what? It's a week later, still empty. He beat death once and for all. And so we can have victory over death. We can have victory through Jesus Christ over fear and anxiety and toxic thoughts and over a victim mentality. We can have victory in all of these places because Jesus beat all of those things. Jesus is victorious over all of those things. And so our victory is through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the destiny that we have. That's the guarantee. That's the promise for all of us is that we are victorious because he is victorious. That is the destiny for every single person, every one of us in this room. But giants, right? But there are still giants. There are still things that get in the way of that victory for us. There are still trials and circumstances. There are still problems that seem huge, Problems that seem insurmountable, problems that seem like we'll never, ever have victory over those things. And while I don't want to just super depress everybody in this room, for just a moment, I want us to think about individually what that looks like for you. What is, if you, if you could call it a giant, what is that giant for you right now in your life? What is that thing that is just looming large in your mind? What is that thing that's getting in the way of the victory that we can have through Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about that. I want you to kind of get that in your mind as we're talking through the story of David because it's important for us to name that thing. It's important for us to name that giant in our lives because I believe that we cannot defeat what we don't define. And so we're gonna put some definitions around it. We're gonna name those giants because I believe that those giants will fall because of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I don't know what that giant is for you. It's different for everybody in the room. Maybe for you, it has something to do with your marriage. Maybe there is, is some tension in your marriage. Maybe there's some unforgiveness in your marriage. Maybe there's some trust that was lost in your marriage, and it just seems like for this thing to happen, for this thing to make it, it is a giant. It is huge. And you don't know what's gonna happen next. Maybe for you, it has something to do with your career. And maybe for you, you're being overlooked for positions, or you're being underappreciated, or maybe for you, you're having a difficult time with a boss or an employee or a coworker, or maybe you're considering career change, or what, what does that look like maybe for that arena and that, that area of your life? Maybe for you, if you're a parent, there's something happening with the kids. Maybe kids are in the home, and there's some tension and friction there. Maybe your kids are grown, and they're out of the house, but there's some, some rift that has happened there. And there's, there's a giant in the world of parenting for you. Maybe for you it's an addiction or a habit that you have tried over and over and over and over to defeat, and it just kind of keeps on popping back up in your life. Maybe for you the giant is financial. Maybe there is a bill. Maybe there is a debt. Maybe there is something looming so big that you're thinking to yourself, there's no way, there's no way I'll ever have victory over this in my life. And maybe I've described all those things, and maybe none of that is really catching with you, and, and, and that's not the giant that you're facing. Maybe the giant you're facing is a little bit more subtle. Maybe the giant you're facing, you don't even realize you're facing it. 
because it's a little bit more subtle than some of those big, obvious things. But maybe for you, your giant is just anger. Maybe you've just kind of reached this place in your life where this anger is just kind of boiling under the surface all the time. And all it takes is for one person to say one wrong thing, and boom, it comes out everywhere. And it comes out on the people that you love the most, even though they are not really the target of your anger. And maybe that's what's happening. Maybe that's the giant that you're trying to overcome. Maybe for you, there's some resentment in your heart. There's some unforgiveness because of something that someone did to you. And you're justified in feeling the way that you do and in having the thoughts that you have. But it's this giant that you feel like you're never going to get over. You're never going to get through. You're never going to get victory. And maybe for you, it's the shame of your past. Things that you've done before that you are not proud of. Things that you hope nobody finds out about. But those are the things that are just giants in your life right now, and you're just not sure how you're going to overcome those things and get that victory. Those giants are in the way. Those giants are something that stands between us and the freedom that has been provided by Jesus Christ and the victory that we find in Jesus. And when that giant steps in the way, when we have this preferred future for our life of victory and of freedom and of peace and of all of those things that are promised by God to us to live out through Jesus Christ, when there is a giant, when there is something that steps up in the way, I don't know about you, but my natural reaction is to go at it. It's to fight it. But it, it, my, my first gut reaction is to just like strap up my boots extra tight and go at it with all that I am. Like everything that I can possibly physically throw at this thing, that is what I'm going to do in my own might, in my own strength, in my own ability, because that's what makes the most sense to me, right? It, because it, it makes sense for me to fight this thing with the, the resources that I have at my disposal. And we see in this story that Saul thought the exact same way. When David finally convinced Saul to let him go and fight Goliath, Saul does what every single one of us probably would do in that moment if we're Saul. We're saying, I'm sending this kid into battle for like supremacy. Like If this kid loses, it's all over. Our whole nation is subject now to this Philistine army. And so I'm going to make sure that I am equipping this kid with everything that I can possibly give him to be successful in this moment. And so he straps on all of his armor. You better believe that was the best armor that money could possibly buy because it was the king's armor. So he puts all this armor on David with the good intentions of, listen, if I'm going to push this kid into battle, I'm going to make sure at least that he is ready. Conventional wisdom say that makes a lot of sense to go into that battle being prepared. But David does something crazy. David does something unthinkable. He walks around in it for a little while, tries to get a feel for it, says, I'm not used to this. And what does David do? He unstraps it all, and he steps out of that armor and onto the battlefield. He steps out of the armor that could keep him safe, and he steps out onto the battlefield. And I truly believe that when David stepped out of that armor, that he stepped into the calling and the destiny that God had for his life. That was a moment. That was a defining moment for David. That battle, him winning that battle, put him on the map. It put some renown around his name. It put some respect on his name, right? And so now word of who David is is starting to travel, and it set him on the trajectory to be in that throne, in that seat. That throne, that's where that moment started right there, stepping out of that armor and into that battle. He stepped into his destiny. But the armor makes a whole lot of sense for us in the natural. It made a whole lot of sense for Saul. But see, this battle's not won in the natural. The battle is won in the supernatural. 
And so that's why sometimes the things that we see that make sense to us don't work, and the things that don't make sense to us do work, because we're not fighting against principalities of the flesh. We are fighting against the supernatural things. And so God sees this as an opportunity to use David in this moment. And I fully believe that David had to know. He had to realize that this was the setup, right? He had to know that this was the opportunity that God gave him to to finally get a crack in at the destiny that he had of being a king. Essentially, when David showed up, he had to have known. I fully believe he had to have known that this was God's will for his life to defeat this giant. And so for him to step into that battle and step out of that armor was him saying yes to the call of God on his life. But David had to determine in that moment whether he was going to fight his battle his way or if he was going to do it God's way. Because essentially what happens is if David walks around in that armor, even if it's uncomfortable, even if he's not really used to it, if he walks into that battle with that armor on, essentially what he's saying is, I trust that God is going to take care of this. I trust that God is going to get me the victory through this. But just in case he doesn't, I'm harder to kill with armor on than I am just going out there without anything on at all. Like, this was the backup plan. This was the just in case. This was the, the kind of loophole that he could find, that I'm, I'm going to go out here, God, and I'm going to say yes to you, and I'm going to do this thing that, that's huge, and, and he's big, and I'm small, but I'm going to go do this thing, that I'm wearing the armor, because just in case, I, I, I think you will. I believe that you will. I have faith that you will, God, that this battle is yours. But just in case you don't come through, I want a little bit of assurance on the back end that maybe I won't die. Or if I do, maybe it'll take longer. I don't know. But, but it's this, this compromise is exactly what it would have been if David would have chosen to stay wrapped up in all of that armor. And when you're fighting a giant, compromise kills Compromise will kill when we are facing those giants in our lives. About a year and a half ago, uh, I, was, I was 39, and I was about to turn 40. And everybody kept telling me these things that, like, if you're 40 or over, people tell you those things, right? They, they kind of chuckle because they know what's coming, I guess. I don't know. And, and they, all these people were telling me the same things. They were like, listen, you know, things change at 40. Like, it's, I know it's just a number, but things change at 40 years old. Like, Physically, things change. You have to understand that maybe when you were younger and you wanted to lose a couple pounds, you could do that like in a few weeks and it'd be fine. Like you could just eat some different stuff and go work out a little bit and you're fine. At 40, that does not happen anymore. You struggle and you struggle and then you probably gain some weight. You know what I'm saying? Like at 40, it all changes. And so I kind of made this commitment to myself. You know what? I even said this to myself and I I spoke it out loud to a couple other people for some accountability. I said, I want to be in the best shape of my life when I hit 40 years old. Now, let's be really honest. Can we say what you're all thinking? The bar's super low. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I'm looking to be like a bodybuilder by the time I hit 40. I'm just looking to not get out of breath when I walk, you know, from the refrigerator to the living room. Like, that's, that's a pretty solid goal for me at that moment in my life, you know? And so I just had this goal that I'm going to get in better shape because I don't, I don't want to hit 40 behind. I want to hit 40 in stride. And so for the last year and a half, I've implemented some things. I've been more consistent in some areas, been more consistent during some times, but I've, I've paid more attention to, to what I've been eating. I've been working out more often. One of the things that I have always hated that I made myself do, and I would love to tell you that I've continued this. I'm going to get back on it. But it's running. I hate running. I hate it 
So much, guys. You don't even know how much I, like, I hear people talk about, like, man, I just went for a run and I love it. And I'm like, I don't know who you are. Like, I don't know how somebody can actually love that. I've never been good at it. I've never been fast. Like, I've never enjoyed it. I've never been like, all right, yeah, let's go for a run. Like, they say there's a runner's high. It is elusive. Like, I have no idea where it lives. If you find it, let me know. I want to visit. Because, like, the only, like, runner's high I get is after I'm done with the run and I can finally breathe again. Like, oxygen, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I like that too, yeah. And so I made myself start running, and I had a, a good friend of mine who said, listen, here's what you're going to do by the time you hit 40. Let's put a goal on the calendar. You're going to run a 5K, like, a, like an organized 5K. And I'm like, 5K, how much is that? 3.1 miles. 3.1 miles? Like, you know, at the same time, like all together, not split up over days? Like, you know. And so I set this goal for myself, and so I started, I started running, and I would map out my course to the 3.1 miles. I knew exactly where that point one ended too, boy, and I stopped. I'm just telling you. When I would train, I would just stop right there, just stop. But as I'm plotting out my route, it's through a series of neighborhoods, basically. So there's all these side streets. And every time I would run by a side street, I would know that my brain would start talking to me because oxygen is becoming precious in my lungs. I'm sweating like crazy. My legs are sore while I'm on my run. And I'm like, if you just take a left right here, you can cut this run in half, right? You can just be home so much faster. And then I would talk myself out of that and be like, no way, no way, I'm going to keep going. But you know what happened next? A block later, there was another street. And I'm like, okay, if you just turn down this one, you still got some time and you can breathe when you get home kind of thing. And so I would constantly have to talk myself out of quitting or taking a shortcut. It got to the point where I seriously, like if I go for a run, I have, before I lace up my shoes, I have to tell myself, you are not taking a shortcut self, you're not doing it. I have to get mean with myself sometimes. You ever have to get mean with yourself to make yourself do some things? Just me? Cool. Okay, so I have to get mean with myself sometimes. Like, it's not going to happen. I don't give myself the out. I don't give myself the option. And I believe that so many times when God invites us into the plan and the destiny and the story that he's writing for our lives, and we say yes to that invitation, we say yes to following Christ, we say yes to being obedient to him, we also have a backup plan or a bailout or a loophole just in case. I know we would never say this out loud, but it's almost like with our lives we are saying, I need Jesus and something else. Because the reality is, is that most of us in this room, we don't doubt that God can do things, do miracles, drop that giant in your life. We don't doubt that he can do that. We've all seen enough times in our lives, in my life, where God's come through and it cannot be explained any other way. I mean, you can look back over the story of my life and be like, God, 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 God. The only reason this happened is because of God here and God here and God here. I know God can do it. Where we struggle the most is that we doubt that he will. Like, I believe that God can get me through this. I believe that God can drop that giant that's in front of me, but I'm not really sure that he will right now for me. I know that he can. I know that he possesses the power. I know that he can do anything, but I'm not sure that he will. If you're sick, it might sound like I, I, I know that God can heal. I know that he can do that, but I, I don't know that he will for me right now. I know that he can restore a marriage. I've seen it happen, but I don't know if he will for me right now. I know that God can provide for me, but I don't know if he will right now. Now listen, I want to be very clear on something. I'm not here saying that if you're sick, that all you need is Jesus and stop taking your medicine. 
I'm not saying that if your marriage is struggling that all you need is Jesus, so don't go to counseling. And I'm not standing up here saying that if you're struggling financially that all you need is Jesus, so you should just quit your job and wait at the mailbox for checks to roll in. But what I am saying is that when we face giants in life, if there is any option to rely on anything except for the power of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives, we as human beings will usually take that out if it's available. One of the things that I, I love about my, my ministry career is that I've, I've worked with young people for almost all of it. I was a youth pastor for a long time, middle school and high schoolers. And, and even now I get a chance to lead our young adult ministry here at DCC, and, and one of the things that comes with that is that I have been asked to perform several weddings for kids that were in my youth group or in our, in our young adults group, and I love it. I love doing weddings. And one thing that we have as a requirement for all of our staff pastors here at DCC is if, if somebody comes to us to, to perform a wedding ceremony, we require three sessions of premarital counseling for them. It's something that Pastor Rocky established early, early on in the years of DCC, and now it's even grown to the point where he's had a chance to kind of standardize it. So if you come to have premarital counseling from any of our staff pastors, we're going through some things that are all similar to all the other couples that are going through counseling with all of our other staff pastors. And, and these moments are, are always unique. They're always interesting because it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out how it's going to be and how it's going to go and what we're going to talk about. It's a little bit intimidating sometimes, I'm sure, for them. And some of the, the things that we deal with, some of the topics that we bring up, they, it can get a little sensitive. Like people don't really know how to take it and sometimes they don't even agree. There are some things that are foundational in these times that I, I, I feel like are great, things that I've applied to my own marriage that have been helpful for us. But one of the things that we always talk about, and you've heard Pastor Rocky say it from this stage before, but don't ever let the word divorce enter into your vocabulary or split up, or separate, or leave, or anything. Don't even, don't even let those words come out of either of your mouths. Because once those words come out, you can't get them back, and you're planting those ideas that can take root in your heart and if you're in your life. So don't even say them. Don't even bring them up. Don't even use those words in your life. Another thing that we talk about in those premarital sessions is we always encourage couples to join their bank accounts together to have one central bank account that both people have access to and information of. And I know you probably have opinions about this. I'm sure that you do, and you can tell me stories. I'm not looking for that right now. I'm just telling you what we advise, and, and this is how we live in our home. And so you know, everybody has access to that. Another thing that we talk about in premarital counseling is we encourage those couples to, to give each other access to all of their account information as far as like social media or mail or passwords, phone passwords, all those kind of things, right? We encourage them to give, make sure that both people have access to that and can and, you know, access that at any time that they want to. So, so why, why do we do all this? In marriages, why do, we, why do we put all of those implementations into our marriages? Is it because we want to kind of, you know, kill the spontaneity? No, not at all. It's because we want to add accountability, and we want to detract from those places where we could compromise in our marriages. We want to safeguard those things. We want to add accountability and take away places to compromise. So I think the question that this leads us to this morning in our own individual lives when we talk about compromise, we talk about dropping those giants that are standing in front of us. I think the question that we have to be honest with is, have there been places in our faith that we've been compromising our obedience to Jesus Christ? 
Is there a place that in your faith walk you've not been as disciplined as you have in the past, kind of here or there? Maybe the conversations with God look like, God, you can have all of who I am except for this one little thing right here because I'm just not ready to give that one up. I'm afraid to give that one up. Afraid to like totally go all in on this. And the problem with this little pieces of compromise in our lives and in our Christian walk is that the enemy only needs a little bit of compromise to do a lot of damage. He doesn't need much. The enemy does not need big compromising situations. He just needs you to compromise a little bit. This man that we're talking about today, David, King David, great King David, who by all accounts and and historical records was an amazing king. Tons of great favor came upon the nation when he was king. Great exploits for God. For goodness sake, he was the little kid that went up against Goliath and in the power of God fell that giant and was successful in that moment. But if you keep reading the life of David, as much as he refused to compromise in that moment by keeping the armor on, As much as he refused to compromise when he faced the giant head on, we read later on in his life of these places where he would compromise a little bit here and a little bit there. And there's this one passage of scripture specifically that says that there was this one time after he was king where this time of year where all the other kings go off to war, David decided to stay home. It's pretty innocent, but it's a compromise. He should have been with his troops. He should have been at war, but I'm sure he justified it to himself. I've been successful. I've won battles. I don't need another victory under my belt. I'm fine. I'm just going to sit this one out. So when all the other people are off to war, he finds himself at home, and there's a woman who is beautiful that catches his eye. He says, I've got to make her mine. And if you keep fast-forwarding through the story, you find that little shepherd boy, David, who refused to compromise by wearing armor to defeat a giant is the same David who you find in the middle of a plot to have murdered the husband of his pregnant mistress. Just that little bit of compromise. When the enemy gets in there, he can make a big mess of it. We cannot compromise. We cannot compromise even in the slightest in our obedience because those giants need to fall, and they will not fall if we compromise. So I'm encouraging all of us this morning to step out of the armor of compromise and into surrender. Step out of the armor, just like David did, and step into surrender, whole heart, fully abandoned, I surrender all. I got whatever you want to do with my life, however you want me to defeat this giant, I'm going to do it. Whatever you're calling me into, it's a yes. Fully, 100, nothing kept back. I'm walking all the way. I'm stepping all the way out of that armor and into surrender. The reason we don't like to do this is because that's extremely vulnerable, isn't it? That's tough for us because we have zero control. And so we feel very vulnerable in those moments. But I have learned in my life that God can do way more with my vulnerability than my ability when it comes to my giants all day, every day. God can do way more if I'll just surrender to him than if I try to fight these giants in my own ability. Because God and only God can take that vulnerability and turn it into a victory. That victory that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. 
You see, when David steps out of that armor and onto that battlefield, he is as vulnerable, literally, physically, as he can possibly be. It doesn't take much. It wouldn't take much from that giant to kill him in an instant without any of that armor on. And it's almost like God is setting this whole thing up. It's almost like God, in his infinite wisdom, is sending David out there without any armor on, fully surrendered to him, knowing that David does not have what it takes to defeat a giant in his own strength, just so that God can get the glory after the giant falls down dead. It's almost like that is what's playing out here, because we know that God often puts us in places where we are not enough so that we can become fully aware that God is more than enough. And so if you feel like there's a place that God's leading you in your life, and you're like, I can't, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not big enough, I'm not strong enough, I don't have enough faith, I don't have enough this, I don't have enough that, maybe that's exactly where God wants you to be, for you to step out of the armor of compromise, stop compromising, step out of that armor, and into a full, yes, I'm going to do this, I'm going to surrender to you into this vulnerability, because what God is after is that yes from you, because that's where he can get a victory from. God can drop that giant in your life with just your yes and your willingness to be vulnerable in front of him. I love this line from David. When David is facing Goliath and he starts talking trash, you, re- you, you realize that. Like The way that the story turns, Goliath is the guy that's talking big and bad, and then all of a sudden, little David, after he stepped out of the armor and he's just this little scrawny maybe dude standing out there on his own without a sword or a spear, to call his own, he starts talking big trash to Goliath. He starts talking about how he's going to feed the birds with the flesh of his army. Like, you imagine how crazy that must have sounded. But David has this line. David says this thing that is just amazing and full of faith. And if we'll grab onto this and use this in those moments where we're facing our giants, I believe that the tide can turn because he says in verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword, or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. David says, I've stepped out of the armor. I'm as vulnerable as I can possibly be. I'm saying yes to God all the way, but I'm not saying yes to God that I can do this by myself. I'm saying yes to God because the battle's not mine to fight by myself. I'm saying yes to God because the battle is already his. I'm just a part of this thing that he wants to do right now. And I believe that in those moments, in those spaces where you're facing those giants, those things that are looming large in your life, those things that are are oppressing you, those things that just seem like you'll never, ever, ever get victory over those things. I think that it's time for us to step out of that armor of compromise. I think it's time for us to step into some vulnerability. I think it's time for us to declare, I'm gonna take this giant down, not because of who I am, but I'm gonna take this giant down because the battle is not mine. I'm gonna take this giant down because the battle is the Lord's. He's gonna fight this battle for me. The victory is not mine. The victory is his through Jesus Christ. I just get to claim that victory after it's all over. And you know what's amazing about this whole story? Nobody that's watching any of that with their own two eyes after it's over thinks that David could have ever done that in his own strength. Nobody's dumb enough to think that David by himself, this little dude, could go against this huge giant and take him down in and of his own strength. And so who ends up getting the credit and the glory for it all anyway? It's God. Those giants that are in your life, as difficult as they are to deal with, and as hard as it is to reconcile, sometimes those giants are there Because God needs to get the glory when the giant falls down. But it's not by my power, not by my might. It's because the battle is the Lord's. 
What would it look like in our lives if we lived like that? What would it look like in our lives if we stepped out of that armor and into that place where we're giving it all to God, letting him fight the battles, and we're living in the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It looks like we live in freedom and he gets the glory. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.